Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Medieval Mediterranean slavery is a phrase that might seem a bit puzzling to some listeners. Surely there wasn't slavery in the medieval Mediterranean, but indeed there was. For hundreds of years, a slave trade existed throughout the Mediterranean world, taking captives in the eastern part from the shores of the Black Sea to Egypt and to Italy. The slave traders were from the republics of Venice and Genoa and the Mameluke Sultanate. Late medieval slavery was not an afterthought or an aberration, writes Hannah Barker. It lay at the heart of Mediterranean society, politics, and religion. A complex of slavery, captivity, trade, and ransom tied disparate parts of the Mediterranean together. Hannah Barker is assistant professor of history at Arizona State University in Tempe. Her book, That Most Precious Merchandise, The Mediterranean Trade in Black Sea Slaves, 1260-1500, was this year awarded the Paul E. Lovejoy Prize by the Journal of Global Slavery, and it is the subject of our conversation today. Hannah Barker, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on this very eminent prize. Thank making you. Making you now a expert in comparative slavery, even though your book is not about comparative slavery. I want to emphasize that. Right. Just in case there's any misunderstanding. So as I understand it, let me let me play this game. Instead of asking you for the argument, let me see if I'm mm-hmm. a good grad student and if I figured it out. Yes. Um, the argument is that there is, an, as it were, a tree of Mediterranean slavery, that Mameluke slavery and the slavery being practiced in Italy are just branches off the same system. Uh, and to mix the metaphors, this tree then unites the Mediterranean world. Yes. So, yes. right, so you're not comparing the slaveries of Egypt and Italy. They are the same system. Right. They're connected in ways that you cannot possibly disentangle them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, this gets into all sorts of interesting things in, in medieval history um, and, and Mediterranean history. I mean, ever since Henri Perrin uh, wrote Muhammad and Charlemagne, everyone has been banging right. on about the, you know, the sea, whether it unites or divides. My old uh, undergraduate mentor, Michael McCormick, has written at least one enormous book about that for the early uh, medieval world. Um, And here we have, uh, well, let's talk about this Mediterranean world because it's, as I was saying to you, in in, in the green room, as it were, um, it's uh, the Mameluke Sultanate is something that seems to come out of science fiction. But actually, in some ways, the Eastern Mediterranean world is so science fiction-y to people. It's so strange when you mm. try to explain it to them during the Middle Ages. It's not what people think. They've got the right. Crusades, and that's about it. But right. let's try to break down the Mediterranean uh, world at the beginning of the period. And who's in the sure. market for slaves, and then who provides those slaves? Sure. So the first thing I would say is actually the Eastern Mediterranean and the Western Mediterranean are connected in the slave trade as well. And I sort of picked one network of slaving, <laughs> this, this network that's taking slaves out of the Black Sea into the Mediterranean, into the Mediterranean to focus on. 
But there is also slave trade going on in Iberia, between Iberia and North Africa. People in Iberia are trading with people in Italy. People in North Africa are trading with people in, in Egypt. Then there's trade going into the sub-Saharan African region. And then we get the Indian Ocean. And so we could go, really, the, the ramifications else are, really are huge, right? Yes. Um, yeah. But my focus was on the Eastern Mediterranean, partly because there is this coherency to it. There's a group of people who are consistently trading with each other. Um, and, we should, and we should also distinguish this. Uh, we discussed way back in episode 95, we discussed the mm -hmm. the, the, the trading captives, as it were. Uh, Daniel yeah. on talked about the, uh, the captivity between Iberia and North Africa. There's a captive trade. There's a captive in the Eastern Mediterranean as well, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about slavery. Yeah, to, well, and the, the boundaries can be a little fuzzy. You know, yep. when does a captive become a slave? Anyway, his, yep. his work on the Western Mediterranean is great. Um, so there's, when we're talking about the, the Mamluks in particular, um, there's a reason why it sounds like science fiction. That's if, if you've ever read Dune by Frank yeah. Herbert, yeah, he, um, he, yeah. he was an expert in, in Middle Eastern history and politics. And it's not a coincidence that things like systems that sound like Mamluk systems show up sometimes uh -huh. in science yeah. fiction. Um, and can you explain that? The, let's let's start with them then. What, what sure. the Mamelukes are a slave? Well, they're a slave. They're often referred to as a slave kingdom or a slave empire, which kind of makes no sense uh, when you're right. putting those words. And, yeah. So what happens is the the idea is this: um, there are young boys, maybe young men, kind of between the age of I want to say about six and sixteen. Um, who are imported as slaves to Egypt and Syria during this period of time. We're talking about greater Syria. So this is kind of the, the southeastern side of the Mediterranean. Um, boys are imported as slaves. They're purchased by people who are already in positions of political and military power, and they're given military training. And the slavery is an essentially, it's a way to force them to go through the training because this is extremely difficult, right? Um, we should note what, this is a period where armies are not trained. This is kind no. of an unusual innovation to actually train an army. So <laughs> that's the compulsion, I guess, there. Everyone else right. kind of does and, it with a few except very few exceptions. It sort of does it in their spare time or they hunting is sort of training. But, right. You know, okay. And these are, these are meant to be the elites. These are meant to be the bodyguards of the ruler. These are the crack troops, right? So that they, they actually get training. They're, they're meant to be the leaders. When we're talking about earlier periods, when we're talking about the Abbasid Caliphate, when we're talking about the Ayyubid dynasty in Egypt, that's Saladin's dynasty, right? Um, these people remain as slaves and they're, you know, slave bodyguards, slave troops. Um, they often wield a lot of power. They're very richly rewarded. They have generous salaries. They live comfortable lives, but they don't have a choice about what they're doing. They're in the military as slaves. Are, are what they, happens? Are they chattel? Mm -hmm. Well, they're what, are they chattel at this oh, time? Yeah. Under Stalin's they rule, so they, they can have a comfortable life, but they could also be sold to somewhere someone else. Right. They can be given. They're often given as diplomatic gifts for, uh -huh. from one ruler to another. Um, so in certain ways they have a lot of power, but in other ways they they don't necessarily have a lot of say in what they're doing with their lives. Um, what happens in the Mamluk period, so this starts in the 1250s, 1260s, there's, there's sort of this watershed moment, first with the, the, the crusade in Egypt that's led by Louis IX, the ruler of Egypt 
dies in the middle of this crusade and this elite bodyguard essentially takes over the defense. They have to, someone has to do something, right? And they're successful in that. Within a couple of years, then you have a Mongol invasion of the Middle East. And again, um, the current, um, the, the new person who becomes Sultan is a minor. He's not really equipped to deal with this. The bodyguards step in. They defeat the Mongol army. They're one of the only commanders ever to defeat a Mongol army during this period. And in the aftermath of that, they become the de facto rulers. They, they stop having a, a sultan from the Ayyubid family, from, from Saladin's family as a figurehead, and they just start ruling in their own name. But in order to do that, they have to be manumitted. So talking about them as a slave dynasty is a little bit misleading. They are rulers who start their political careers as slaves. But what becomes the new pattern is they do this military training. At the end of the training, they graduate, they are manumitted, and they are appointed to posts in the army or in one of these elite households, you know, treasurer, um, secretary, those kind of positions. And that's all kind of part of the same ceremony. Those things all happen at the same time. So by the time they're actually wielding political power, they're not slaves anymore. Um, but there is still this question about even, even a freed slave, do they still have the same kind of legal agency and capacity to wield power as someone who was born free? Mm-hmm. So can we um, briefly, who are uh, the other sort of markets for slaves besides Mameluk Egypt? Mameluk Egypt, I, I imagine, is, is the enormous market, but there are other markets. Well, so Mamluk Egypt has this market for military slaves, and then there's also a market for domestic slaves, right? Who is going to do the cooking, do the cleaning, do the childcare, run the errands? And that market for domestic labor exists all over the Mediterranean. Um, more, it's more of an urban thing. So you, you find slaves more in cities than you do in the countryside. They tend to be women, um, but you can find them in Cyprus, in Crete, in Constantinople, in all the major cities in Italy, all the major cities in Iberia, all the major cities in North Africa. Um, finding domestic slaves there is pretty common. Is there a market for agricultural slaves? Not much. And when you do find slaves doing agricultural labor, they tend to be domestic slaves who are you know, helping pick the fruit when it's ripe, but that's not their permanent long-term position. You know, there are some exceptions for sugarcane cultivation. Um, But apart from that, mostly not agricultural. uh, An important exception, which has uh, lasting influence. Yes. Um, Is there any, are slaves used at all in, say, large workshops? So there's not factories in the sense that we're used to thinking of. There is, you know, craft production and artisanal production, and there are artisans who use slaves as sort of unskilled assistants. Uh Um, So, for example, when you're talking about a bakery, somebody has to do the hot work of getting all the bread in and out of the oven. Maybe that gets delegated to a slave, right? Uh Um. If you're talking about a smith, someone has to go get all the wood and chop all the wood to run the furnace. Maybe that's a slave's job. Occasionally, you have slaves who learn some of the skills associated with certain crafts as well. Um, But that is actually a minority. Most slave labor in most Mediterranean cities is domestic. Okay. 
Well, let's um, talk. Uh, uh, it, this is a, an amazing book that goes from talking about definitions of slavery and Thomas Aquinas and various Muslim jurists to scatter plots. Um, so, if you like variety, there's uh, there, there's a lot in this book. A lot of different ways of, of, of tackling this problem. But let's talk a little bit about the theological and sort of philosophical and juridical problem. Um, what is a slave uh, uh, theologically, and how does that change from faith to faith, or does it change from faith to faith? Right. So this is one of those areas where there's a lot of commonality, but it's not exactly the same, depending on which thinker you look at and which tradition they're writing in. Um, I'm not going to talk about Jewish traditions here just because that's not my area of expertise. There are people who really work on that, but I'm not one of them. Um, I focus more on Christian and Muslim texts. So there's this you know, commonly held idea by both Christians and Muslims that sort of the original state of humanity is freedom. But, and then they add an Aristotelian layer on it about sort of human nature, right? That the natural state, you know, according to natural law, humans should be free. But then in human society, humans make laws which go beyond the natural state. And one of the things which human beings have instituted is slavery. And slavery appears in the Bible, slavery appears in the Quran. Therefore, even though it's not the sort of inherent natural state of human beings, it is sort of a, a legally and socially acceptable innovation that human beings have come up with. Then there's the question of how people become slaves. And that tends to be talked about in these theoretical kind of contexts. Um, first, in terms of captivity, slaves are people who are captured and they are not ransomed, they stay in captivity. And there's also the idea that people can be born into slavery, that depending on the status of your parents, particularly the status of your mother, you can be born into slave status. Who has that idea where, and where does that come from? So that's pretty broadly based. You see it in Christian thinkers, you see it in Muslim thinkers, it is coming out a lot of the authoritative religious texts, but it's also, they're both drawing on Aristotle and Aristotelian theories of slavery. Mm -hmm. Now, the law, the legal codes are going to be Roman uh, uh, in the, in, there in the Mediterranean. And of course, the Romans, they know all about slaves and their yeah. legal codes are really very well adapted to, uh, I mean, with the great um, legal innovations uh, of, of adapting just the Justinian code to uh, medieval mm -hmm. purposes. Um, they mm -hmm. have a ready source of, of precedent uh, for dealing right. with slavery. Yes. There's one big change that happens, and this is something that happens only in the Islamic world, um, a change in the status of people who are born into slavery. And the change is that if a free man has a child with his own enslaved woman and he acknowledges that he acknowledges paternity that that's his child that child is automatically born free and the mother is given this special status called umwalid status which means that she can't be sold she can't be asked to do certain kinds of work and when the master dies she's automatically freed at that point that's something that didn't exist in roman law and it's something that's new in the islamic legal framework the italians stick pretty closely to Roman precedents. They change some things, but not, not massive changes like that. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the, 
status of conversion uh, related to slavery. This seems to be this is very a very important point. Um, you right. make clear several points throughout the your book how this drives certain attitudes towards slaving and the slave trade. Yes. So the idea is that so slavery is considered legal, it's considered acceptable, and the people who are appropriate to enslave are people who are not the same religion as you, whatever that means, right? Uh-huh. Um, so Christians are not supposed to enslave other Christians, but they can enslave people who are not Christian. Muslims are not supposed to enslave other Muslims, but they can enslave other people who are not Muslim, right? Once someone has been enslaved, they're expected to convert to the religion of the master. So these non-Christians who have been enslaved by Christians, they're expected to become Christians, right? Non-Muslims who have been enslaved by Muslims, they're expected to become Muslims. And that conversion doesn't change their status. Their, their slave status is based on their, their previous religion, their, their religion of origin, and it's not affected by conversion. Hmm. Um. Is this considered uh, do what 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 are the indications of how captives what captives think about this? Um, is this like, okay, this is par for the course? Naturally, I'm going to assume my owner's religion or is is are there signs of resistance? Well, so this is because this is sort of a widespread practice in the Mediterranean, it's it doesn't come as a surprise. Mm-hmm. right? if If you are on the wrong ship in the wrong place at the wrong time and you get captured, you know that there's going to be pressure to convert. That's that's a normal part of, part of practice across the Mediterranean. Um, people who ex- who they expect to be ransomed are usually not pressured to convert because then the conversion gets in the way of being able to return them home. Um, so if someone is, you know, if you capture a ship full of people and you expect that their families are probably going to pay a ransom for them, then you don't pressure them to convert. You try to negotiate the ransom. Um, if it looks like a ransom is not going to be forthcoming, then there's this transition into something more permanent, right? Or if you if if they don't even attempt to negotiate a ransom, if they just decide to enslave people and keep them, that's where the so so conversion is sort of tied to the idea that this is going to be a, a permanent or a long term status. This is not something that you can expect to to be ransomed out of. Um. You make, uh, early on in the book, you uh, draw upon uh, Ira Berlin's uh, distinction between um, slave societies and societies mm-hmm. with slaves. Can you explain that the distinction? And, uh, and why are these Mediterranean societies uh, simply society, societies with slaves? Right. So the distinction there, um, slave societies, according to Ira, Ira Berlin, um, they have a certain proportion of the population is, is slaves. And off the top of my head, I want to say it was 25%, right? But a, a large proportion of the total population is slaves, enslaved people. And they're, they play an essential economic role. If you removed the slave population from that society, it would, it would no longer be able to function in the way that it would normally function, right? And very quickly, they assume a, a, an important cultural role as well. Yes. Right, that it's important to, you know, how people in that society see themselves and see their culture, how free yeah. people see themselves and see their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then societies 
with slaves, those things are not true, right? It would be a smaller proportion of the population is enslaved. It's not, slavery is not an economically essential part of the society. And it's also not a sort of ideologically or culturally essential part of the society. So when we're talking about the Mediterranean, um, slaves are not that big a percentage of the population. When we're talking about Genoa, we actually have some numbers. In that case, the slave population is never more than 5% of the total population. Um, it could be as low as 2%, depending on whose numbers you're using. Um, for the Mamluk Sultanate, the slave population is a little bit higher, but it's not 25%. It's less than 10% for sure. Um, so the numbers aren't really there. It's also not, well, when we're talking about domestic labor, it's not economically essential in the sense that if all the slaves disappeared overnight, they would, they would hire free servants, right? right. Um, when you're talking about the Mamluk case, it's a little bit trickier because if you move the rulership of society, obviously that would have effect. But is it really, is there slavery economically and, and culturally essential I don't think so. You it, have it's interesting. It's not maybe yeah. not culturally essential. It's culturally important in Mamluk Egypt. It is culturally important, right? And so this is where I want to sort of walk this line a little bit. I don't think these are slave societies because I don't think slavery slavery is as deeply embedded in the economy as it is in some place like the American South. But that doesn't mean that slavery isn't important. It's more ideologically important than it is economically important. Mm -hmm. What, uh, where do these slaves come from? Uh, we've said, I've said the Black Sea already, but that's, uh, it's bigger than we think, the Black Sea. Um, yes. Where, where around the Black, who, who are they? Um, right. How are they captured? All the rest of that. Right. So this is the question I was really interested in when I got into this is, you know, who, who are these people? Um, the Black Sea during this period on the northern coast, this is the area dominated by the Golden Horde which is one of the successor states of the Mongol Empire. Um, and then you have this area to the east in the Caucasus, which is very fragmented um, politically, linguistically, culturally. There, there's lots of, I mean, even today, right? This, mm -hmm. is, this is a complicated area. Um, and then to the south, you have Byzantine and Turkish states of various types interacting with each other. To the west, you've got the Balkans, right? Um, in this case, we're talking about Bulgars and Wallachs and what we would now talk about as Romania, um, who have sort of bigger states that are connected into the, the Byzantine sphere. So most of the slaves are coming from the north and the east. So they're coming from the Mongol sphere or the Caucasus, although there are also some exceptions to that. Um, some of them are being taken captive. Well, first of all, when you have the Mongol conquest of the region, one of the ways that people, not just Mongols, but in this case, we're talking about Mongols, one of the ways that people profit from conquest is by enslaving people, taking captives and then selling them and using the money to pay their soldiers. So the Mongol conquest of this region generates a huge number of slaves. Following that, um, slaves are sometimes taken as tribute by the Mongol empire from the areas that they've conquered. 
there's also a lot of rating that goes on in this area. And this is this is small scale, you know, one group rating a neighboring group and Mongols get raided in this way. So you have Mongols showing up in the Black Sea slave trade as well, who have been captured in raids. A lot of this goes on in the Caucasus, mutual raiding between different groups. Um, on an even smaller scale, there's kidnapping. You're sailing around in the Black Sea. You see some kids playing on the beach. Kids are money. You can sail in, grab them, and leave. And so you have Genoese children, for example, being enslaved in Italy because they were picked up out of Genoese colonies in the Black Sea. Um, and then the last well, thing... Um, to, to that, we yeah, can ahead. say, wow. Yes. That's, um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Go on. I mean, we know about it because when they get old enough, they sue for freedom. Oh. Um, and then they have to prove their origins. And that's a little bit complicated when you were kidnapped off the beach when you were eight. Right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, but it gives you a sense of how much of a, a free-for-all this is. Um, and how much money can be made off of people. I mean, there are also cases where, you know, a, a Venetian ship agrees to carry some Byzantine merchants, for example, from Constantinople over to Trebizond, but they don't go to Trebizond. They go to the slave market and they sell them, right? And then those people are, again, suing for freedom to try to prove that they've been wrongfully enslaved in, in a world where slavery is not illegal, but certain modes of turning people into slaves are allowed and certain modes are not. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it gets really messy really fast. So it already seems clear from the example of picking children off of the beach or um, deciding that your passengers are more valuable as slaves, that these are not necessarily purpose-built or uh, purpose, purposefully directed slave ships in the way that we're familiar from the Atlantic slave trade. Is that right? I mean, these are yeah. slaves are basically something else you take along with other cargo. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And people, merchants rarely specialize in the slave trade. They tend to trade slaves plus five or six other commodities from the Black Sea. Ships rarely specialize in shipping slaves. They tend to have what we call mixed cargo. So they have some slaves, some grain. Caviar comes from the Black Sea. So they, they might have caviar. They might have salted fish. They might have honey, um, wax, leather. Um, there's some long distance slave trade. The Black Sea is, is one end of the Silk Road network, right? So you also get silk and jewels and other, you know, luxury commodities that are coming from Central Asia and from as far as China. They're all on the same ship. So ships tends not to have more than 100 slaves on them, and it tends to be significantly less. There are ships with, you know, 25, 30, 50 slaves, and those those 50 slaves on that ship belong to 10 different merchants. Where where are they being taken from other than beaches? And I mean, are there, are there slave markets along the littoral of the Black Sea? Yes. So the, the big export hub, one of them is called Kassa, and it's a port. It's still there. It's Theodosia now, I think, um, on the Crimean Peninsula that was a Gen Genoese colony. They, yeah, I'm calling it a colony purposefully, right? They had direct governmental control over it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then and the other boys, hub, And also boys and girls. Mm -hmm. That's how the Black Death came to Europe. That's, that's a whole other story. story. That's not, yes. Yes. 
not related to the slave trade, actually. No, um, right. It's more connected to the grain trade, but that's, that's a whole different issue. I mean, we should say that people are wondering about this grain trade thing. Believe it or not, since like 500 B.C., uh, Greek cities are already dependent upon uh, grain being brought from the Black Sea. If you have urbanization, right. you need to have farms somewhere else. And right. the Black Sea is really good for growing wheat and yeah. uh, other types of grain. And it had been going on for 1,500 years by this time, by the time we're talking about, at yeah. least. And Genoa and Venice, in, I mean, Venice is in the middle of the water. They can't grow their own grain. Yep. Genoa is extremely mountainous. They don't grow their own grain. So this is this is actually a big, and Constantinople is the other big market for Black Sea grain. Um, so there's a lot of grain trade going on. So you have this this one hub in Kaffa that's on the Crimean Peninsula that's Genoese-controlled, and then the main rival is Tana, which is at the mouth of the Don River, where it flows into the Sea of Azov. That was sort of a Venetian-dominated community, but it wasn't a colony. That was actually under the control of the Golden Horde, but there was a significant Venetian diaspora population there. So those are the two places where as, where slaves, um, where there's a transition from the being captured in battle or <clears throat> just for the hell of it by someone, right. where they bring them to the, these markets and then they're sold to merchants who are there for grain, for jewels, for what have you, and then they yeah. make the then they make the transit into the Mediterranean. Um, right. Where do they go after that? Where where do they where are they brought to in the western in the eastern Mediterranean? Right. So there are, so ships sailing in the Eastern Mediterranean need to stop occasionally. Um, they need to buy things, sell things, get fresh food, fresh water, get news. Depending on where, where they're sailing, they might need a pilot to guide them if there's particularly treacherous local waters, you know. Um, so Genoese ships tend, oh, so they all stop in Constantinople. Um, and, and Para, which is sort of the Genoese suburb that's across the strait, Right. And, and they tend to stop there They and buy and sell whatever they have, including slaves. Genoese ships tend to stop in Chios, which is another Genoese colony. This is sort of off the Anatolian coast. Venetian ships tend to stop in Crete, which was a Venetian colony. Sometimes they'll go down to Cyprus. And then from there, they go further west. So either they'll go directly to Venice or Genoa. Um, but these Eastern Mediterranean trading hubs is where the slaves from the Black Sea get out into other networks. So, for example, you have a Venetian ship that leaves Tana and makes a stop in Constantinople and makes a stop in Crete. And in Crete, they meet some merchants from Barcelona. And the merchants from Barcelona buy some uh, slaves from the Caucasus, for example. And now they're being sent to Barcelona and Valencia and Mallorca and other places. So... Each place where the ship stops, slaves might be bought or sold, and they move on into these other interconnected networks. So are, are Venetian and Genoese merchants making direct trips to Alexandria, or do other people pick those up in their various, in the other entrepots in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean? So this is something that changes over the course of the period that I'm looking at, the 13th to 15th century. In the late 13th century, there seems to be some Mamluk shipping from the Black Sea direct to Alexandria. I mean, again, they, they may stop in Constantinople and other places along the way, but more or less direct, right? 
Um, so in that case, the Mamluk merchants tend to go inland. They go to the Mongol courts. Either the, the main one in the region is at Saray, or they may go to Sulgat, which is sort of the regional governor in Crimea, and buy slaves there, and then bring them down to these ports to the coast and get on Mamluk ships and go. But Mamluk shipping sort of collapses in competition with Italian shipping in the early 14th century. So from the early 14th century onward, there's Mamluk merchants bringing their slaves on Italian ships. And so then you have Italian ships going from the Black Sea to Alexandria, more or less direct. Um, but the presence of Mamluk merchants with slaves on these ships sometimes causes tension. Um, the third thing the Mamluk merchants are able to do, and this is starting from the mid-14th century, is they're able to just cross the Black Sea to the Anatolian side and then go overland through the mountains down um, to Syria and then further down uh, to Egypt. So there's this window in the early 14th century where Mamluk merchants are really dependent on Italian shipping to move their slaves. And then by the time you get to the late 14th century, they've got more options. They've got this land route. And so the, the tensions are reduced a little bit. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was, I know in, in American slavery, very early on, and by the early 18th century, um, the people who are very new at being uh, enslavers and slave masters uh, already pride themselves on their ability to make uh, ethnic distinctions between various Af uh, African groups and tribes mm -hmm. and knowing what they're good for, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, I, I imagine that same thing must happen in the Mediterranean. Um, are people selling different ethnicities based on their capacity to do to be better soldiers than the other the other kind or i mean are they is there a market for experienced mongol warriors is that, or is that the last person that you want to have working for you right so you definitely don't want an experienced mongol warrior because they yeah. will kill that's you rather than yeah, being enslaved right. right but there are definitely ethnic categories um ethnic stereotypes one of the things i'm interested in right now so i don't have an answer for you but give me give me a couple of years mm -hmm. um <laughs> is whether it's better to talk about these in terms of racial categories rather than ethnic categories so is it something that people at the time believed to be you know fixed inherent innate categories or is it something that people believed to be malleable right um i'm not sure about that but i'm i'm very interested in this question so they're definitely labeling people and they're definitely using those labels to decide about which slaves are going to be used for which purposes um the mamluk sources are a little bit more explicit about this there are treatises that are guides to slave buying right um which we can talk about why those exist in the Mamluk case and why they don't exist in the Italian case, because there's go a ahead, reason go, for that. Go ahead and talk about that. Why, why, okay. Why? Yeah. Um, so the way that it actually has to do with the wording of sale contracts. Um, the way Mamluk contracts for the sale of slaves are worded puts liability for any kind of mistakes or, or problems right on the buyer. So the buyer has an obligation to inspect and to understand everything about this slave. And then if they purchase the slave and then there's some kind of a dispute later on, whether it's about, you know, was the slave actually healthy? Has the slave's ethnicity been misrepresented? Has their gender been misrepresented? There's all kinds of 
I mean, some of these are, are more sort of legal theoretical issues than issues that actually came up, but it's something that the, the legal theorists are very interested in. Um, in those cases, sort of the onus to prove that there was fraud is on the buyer. So buyers really need to know what they're doing. And these treatises are meant to help people who are not experts in, you know, the ethnicities of people who are offered for sale or in recognizing signs of internal health conditions. Um, it's meant to offer them some kind of advice about how to make sure that you're not being defrauded in the slave market. Italian no, slave sale no, contracts put the liability on the seller. Oh, okay. Okay. So all right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the the if there's some question about fraud, the the seller is the one who has to prove that they were not deceiving anyone, and so there's not the need for the same kind of advice because there there's less anxious buyers essentially. Um. So. I think I remember Stephen Epstein saying in his history of medieval Genoa that Circassians were the most valuable slaves to bring back. Um, it might be, might have been him, might be someone else. Is that is that true? I mean, because they're well, blonde, and, and blonde and blue eyed. I mean, is this is it or, or is that? Uh... I would quibble with that. I mean, most of Stephen Epstein's work is excellent, but that's one particular issue where what I'm finding is a little bit different. Uh -huh. Um. First of all, Circassians are not necessarily blonde, blue-eyed, or white. Yeah, um, yeah. One of the things that's very interesting is looking at the, the range of the way that these slaves are described. And it doesn't always necessarily match up to the, the things that we would assume. Uh -huh. um, one of the things I've been very interested in is color and how are slaves described in terms of color. And yeah. one of the things that's been very interesting is finding slaves who are described as blackish yellow or brown between two other brown colors or or just mixed mixed color right what does that mean i think what's going on although as i said this is something that i'm continuing to work on um i think what's going on there is they're talking about color not just in terms of the you know visual appearance of the slave but also in terms of humoral balance right mm, and this is something this is sort of a medical framework that, again, the Christian and Muslim worlds share. They're getting it from Greek medical, you know, Galen and Hippocrates and this, this kind of intellectual world. Um, but it's the idea that every person's body is made up of four liquids, four humors, and each one of them has an associated color. So you have red, white, yellow, and black. And talking about the color of the slave tells you something about which humors are dominant in that slave. And a slave with a mixed color, that's a good thing. That's someone who has well-balanced humors. There's not one color that's really dominant. That's a very interesting idea. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. I'm very, that's a very exciting idea. And, I, and I'm wondering how, I could, how that can play into the 18th century even, where Galen has a tremendous longevity, <laughs> more, right. than, more than most right. thinkers, and what it means for uh, slaves to be entirely black within the Galenic framework is a very interesting way of thinking about race or how that well, gets to race. There's clearly a shift that happened yeah. in you know, the 16th, 17th centuries, both in the way that slaves are talked about and described, but also in the sources of slaves, right? One of yeah. the things about the Mediterranean is slaves come from every, everywhere. There, there's no sort of characteristic feature of a slave. And I think when you end up with a very heavily African-dominated slave market, um, that also kind of changes the way that slaves are described. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it changes the perceptions of slavery itself. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, it's one of the things that, uh, I mean, scholars of American slavery really need to read your book uh, just to get outside the thought world of American slavery. Um, that would be great. <laughs> it would be, yeah. And um, one of the things is the realization of anyone who, who sails in the Mediterranean that I can be a slave. Yeah. Is uh, something that would not occur to someone um, sailing in the early 19th century Caribbean. They might die, but uh, right. if they're from New England, a, a white guy from New England, they're probably not going to be a slave. Might be a captive, right. might be dead, but they're not going to be sold in a slave market. Right. And, yeah, uh, and I think that is one of the fundamental differences in this particular sort of culture of slavery is the idea that it's something that, it, I mean, it's it's sort of the worst, most unfortunate thing that can happen to you short of death, maybe, but it's something that potentially everyone is vulnerable to. I mean, these, these Genoese and Phoenicians and, and the people in Egypt who are taking Mamluk slaves, they also get enslaved less frequently because they're less likely to be in the wrong place in the wrong time, but it does happen. Um, so uh, anyone who knows anything about Venice in Genoa know these are extremely sophisticated places when it comes to financial instruments and regulation. Mm-hmm. And uh, people listen to the podcast with Ioana Yordano um, know that Venice even has an extraordinarily sophisticated intelligence service from yeah. a very early date. Um, so it's not surprising that they also have sophisticated regulation. Uh, how do they regulate slave trades, uh, slave trade, and why? Why do they regulate it, and to what purpose? So this is an area where Venice and Genoa were in competition, right? Not only this area, but they were c- competing for control over shipping and port access and port regulation all over the eastern and the western Mediterranean. Um, so when we're talking about slaves, this fits into a much bigger picture of both political and economic competition. Um, but slaves played a, played a special role in this. So part of it was um, economic regulation to profit from the slave trade, right? If people are buying and selling slaves in Genoa, in Venice, or in any of these other ports that they control, like Caffa or Chios or in Crete, right, the government wants a cut. So there are taxes on the slave trade, just like there would be taxes on the wine trade or the grain trade or the salt trade or any other trade that's generating significant profits. Um, So in that sense, the slave trade is not that different than all these other trades. The thing that's different about slaves is they're human beings with souls. And depending on who buys them, they will convert to one religion or another. And particularly with respect to the Black Sea trade, that was sensitive because their competition is the Mamluks. And the Mamluks are not just their competitors in the slave market, they're also competitors in the Crusades. So these slaves who are being sold in the Mamluk market rather than the Italian market are going to convert to Islam rather than Christianity. That's something that everyone involved takes for granted, right? Not only are they going to convert to Islam, they're then going to be trained as soldiers to fight against Christians. (laughs) So this is something, this is where the tensions around Italian shipping of Mamluk slaves comes from, right? People who are particularly invested in the crusading cause will accuse particularly the Genoese because the Genoese have more control. They have this colony, right, where they can actually set the regulations. 
why are they allowing slaves to these Mamluk slaves to be exported? They're doing it because it's profitable, right? Um, but they end up with this situation where, on the one hand, General wants to allow the Mamluks to export slaves because they make money off of it. They also want to allow it because they want to cultivate a good relationship with the Mamluks in general because trade with the Mamluks is profitable, right? When we're talking about the spice trade in Alexandria, that's hugely profitable. And the Genoese want to make sure that they have their position in that. But on the other hand, they're getting pressure because of the religious dynamics of this to cut off the Mamluk slave trade. The Mamluks absolutely do not want that because they want to continue this situation of training slaves as soldiers in order to raise them up into the, the ranks of political power. And specifically, their stereotype is that slaves from the steppe, so Mongols, Tatars, Russians, Circassians, these are the kinds of labels they're, they're using, right? These are the most desirable military slaves, just according to the ethnic stereotypes. So they are very invested in making sure that they continue to have access. And Genoa in particular, because it has this colony where it does have the power to set regulations, is kind of caught in this bind. Um, so they create regulations, for example, this is sort of in the early 15th century, where they're going to inspect every slave ship that leaves port and ask all the slaves what religion they are and whether they want to be Christian. And if they either say that they are Christian or they want to be Christian, they're not allowed to be taken to Egypt. If they say that they're not Christian and they don't want to be Christian, then they're allowed to leave. So this is their way to try to get around this. Whether those inspections actually happened and whether they happened in sort of an open way where slaves could actually say what they thought, I'm, I'm highly skeptical of that. Um, but it's their way to try to square this circle when they did inspect some ships, because there was at least one shipment of slaves that got held in Kaffa that was supposed to go to the Mamluks, to Alexandria, but they refused to allow the ship to leave because they wanted to take some slaves off the ship. When that happened, um, the Mamluk sultan imprisoned all the Italian merchants in Alexandria. Not just Genoese, all of them. Right? And they eventually had to negotiate for some new slaves to be sent to Alexandria, and then the merchants were released, and everything got worked out. But there's there's a series of these events where there are Italians, especially Genoese, but also Venetians, trying to put some kind of breaks on the Mamluk trade for religious reasons, but it comes back to bite them for economic reasons in their trade within the Mamluk Sultanate. It's just a, another indication um, to people who might be coming to this for the first time, the ways in which um, there is no wall across the Mediterranean. There's just very complex interrelationships. Uh, yes. and, and, and to which the Crusades eventually become a real annoyance to nice Genoese uh, housewives and old ladies who have investments <laughs> in uh, the various trading ships. Uh, you can see why the Alexandrian Crusade of 1365 drives both the Venetians and Genoese into like an absolute frenzy of of rare agreement that this is like the most worst thing that could ever happen. Um, right. Sacking and assaulting Alexandria, the, the source of their wealth. My goodness. Well, it's tricky because if they actually succeeded in getting control of Alexandria, then that would be great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the problem is the, I mean, when you're looking at Mediterranean states in the 13th and 14th, even the 15th century, the Mamluk Sultanate is, is the richest state that there is. 
um, they just have more money than anyone else. So this is the other way that they're able to keep the slave trade flowing is essentially by throwing money at it, right? It's a complicated situation. Um, People, the merchants who are involved and the ship captains who are involved might feel some conflicts. So pay them generously, right? Make it worth their while to facilitate this. And the Mamluk Sultanate has the money to do that in the way that really no one else does, not even Venice or Genoa. What... um... You've already discussed that uh, the population of slaves in Genoa about, uh, you said, 2 to 5%. Um, how did you mm-hmm. figure that out? Could you briefly describe that? Um, how long did it take you to figure that out? How, <laughs> how, how heroic were the measures that you took to figure that out? Well, so the first thing is we don't have definite numbers, right? There's just, there's, there's no way to get, there, there's no census. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's no way to really give a, give a specific count. But we can come up with a, estimates. Um, the best place to get those kind of numbers is from tax records because there were taxes, there, there was a tax on the slave trade. So in theory, every time someone buys or sells a slave, they should pay a tax and that tax should be recorded in a register. We don't have all the registers, but we have, I want to say three or four for the 15th century. So you can at least get some kind of a, a sense, right? And there's also a tax on possession of slaves. So again, we don't have all the registers. I think there are three surviving registers, but at least you get these three pinpoints of how many slaves were in the possession of people in Genoa. Um, Even with those, we don't have exact numbers because people evaded the tax. There were people who were tax exempt for various reasons. Um, So those are not complete counts, but it, it gives us enough information to say these are, we're talking about thousands of slaves, not hundreds, not tens of thousands. It's somewhere in the the thousands ballpark, right? Um, So I want to say it's kind of two to 4,000 in most years. There are some years where there seem to be more. There are some years where there seem to be less, but definitely in the thousands. Finding this out was a huge pain in the neck um, (laughs) because the tax registers are kept in a special part of the archive in Genoa, which is it's sort of off-site. Um, so to get access to them, you can only go one day of the month on, you know, when the moon is full and it's raining and you have to ask for exactly the right thing, but there's no catalog. Um, that being said, the archivists in Genoa were incredibly helpful. Since I've written this book, they have cataloged the materials that I was looking at. And there's a website which you can now look at to be able to find things much more easily. So it has actually, you know, if I had been writing this book now rather than 10 years ago, it would have been a lot easier. Um, But they were in the process of putting together this catalog at the time when I was writing the book. So I was able to go to them and say, look, I'm trying to find this tax register. Can you help me figure out where to look? And they were able to look at their preliminary catalog materials and help me out. So I, I really appreciated it. That it, it was a lot of work, but it would have been much harder if they hadn't been willing to, to help me with that. Now, you've referred to Genoa. Are there no records available for Venice? And how odd is that? Well, so they did tax slaves. I just don't know where the registers are. And I haven't found anyone else who has cited them either. So I'm not sure that they've survived. Um, this is one of the things about medieval history, right? We know that there's a lot of material that used to exist that doesn't exist now for various reasons. 
And um, uh, it's sort of sometimes are... like uh, it's like a little bit related to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. It, it might be out there, but sometimes just looking for it makes it go away. Well, and there have been problems, right? When you're talking about Genoa, the archives in Genoa were bombed in yep. the 17th century by the French. And that just caused all kinds of confusion. Um, Venice is susceptible to the damp and mold. Um, there's also the, the Mamluks taxed slaves, but those registers are also gone. Um, in that case, it seems like, I mean, when a new regime would take over. So in this case, we would be talking about the Ottomans, right? It was normal practice to destroy the records of the previous regime, but then also they would, um, sell records as scrap paper on the paper market. Uh, so it makes, it makes you sad I mean, just thinking about it. it really does yeah i mean we know it existed because there was someone in charge of collecting the tax but having a register where they're actually marking all the taxes that they collected i mean we're actually really lucky to have these ones that we do from genoa yeah um so what were slaves worth and how did that how did value the slave value alter and change over time so this is a little bit tricky, um, partly because the currency undergoes significant fluctuations over time. Um, slaves are fairly expensive. They're more expensive than a horse. They're less expensive than a ship or a house or something like that. Um, I've been looking at 15th century stuff recently, and there, when you're talking about slaves, you're talking about sort of 100 to 200 Genoese lira, but, but what does that mean, right? You need something to compare it to. Um, some slaves are worth more than others. The slaves that are particularly expensive tend to be highly skilled slaves. Um, skilled in what? So when we're talking about Italy, we're talking about people who are wet nurses in particular, um, women who have just given birth to a child, but they can nurse someone else's child. They are very valued and very expensive. Um, to a certain extent, also someone who has been working for an artisan and, and has actually learned skills. Those, those kinds of slaves might be worth a little bit more. Um, I found that women in their mid-20s, tended to be worth the most. And I think what's going on there is um, people who have, because they tend to be imported much younger, more like between 10 and 15, right? Mm -hmm. So by the time they're in their mid-20s, this is someone who's been living in Italy for a while, has learned the language, has learned about how Italian household management works, um, but is still young enough to do heavy physical labor. So... I think that's why the numbers are sort of peaking there, but it's not dramatic. It's sort of, a, it's a gentle peak. Is it because the they really, can also still have children? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm... That's another thing I'm looking into now. I do think that that's a factor. Um, and women in Italy continued bearing children, both free women and enslaved women, right, into their late 30s. Um, so again, you could say the mid-20s is maybe, you know, not, not, early childbearing years, but kind of nicely in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's something that I'm continuing to look into is how, how, what, what's sort of the value of that and how is that priced into the market? Um, 
there's also the, the really expensive slaves are the ones that the Mamluk Sultan purchases because in that case it's it's conspicuous consumption, right? Mm-hmm. The Sultan will purchase slaves not just based on the what kind of labor the slave can do, but also because he's the Sultan, he has to have the most expensive slaves because that's what Sultans do. Um, so soldiers are actually not the most expensive. The most expensive slaves in the Mediterranean are singers. Um, and they actually tend to be African. Um, women who are brought, sometimes to Cairo, sometimes they'll go to Baghdad or Mecca or Medina, one of the other sort of places that are considered to be the centers of, of culture and literature. And they're trained to sing, they're trained to compose poetry. And once they've had that training, if they're really good singers, really good poets, especially if they're really good and they're also really beautiful, those are the most expensive slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking before I began about the various ways in which slaves were used, um, in effect, as um, in various economic uses uh, of, mm-hmm. of slaves. Uh, one thing that might uh, strike people as odd is that multiple people own the same slave. Um, of course, as in, until relatively recently, I don't think in in the American South and in, in American slavery, not enough attention has been paid to how uh, slavery uh, slaves were hired out, um, mm. which is a way that makes slavery extraordinarily nimble uh, to, according yeah. to economic circumstances. Um, and it makes also slavery, by the way, um, uh, much more useful to people who do, do not quote technically own slaves. Um, right. They, they can still hire them. Um, how does that work in the Mediterranean in terms of the diversified uses of, of the labor, of the enslaved labor, and also the ways in which people use the slave as a, a sort of, econ, econ, well, based like a stock or a bond, as we would think of it. Right. Right. So I think you see the most type of range of labor um, in the Mamluk context because you have military slaves, you have these, you know, singing, singing slaves, you have domestic slaves, you have eunuchs, which we haven't even talked about yet. Um, so there's this whole range of possible things that a slave could be doing. Talk about, um, talk about eunuchs just to make every, freak everyone out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so again, this is not something that's unique to the Mamluk context. When we're talking about the, you know, 13th to 15th century in the Mediterranean, the Byzantine court also has eunuchs. And then if we wanted to look globally, there are other cases as well. And there were, um, and then of course the castrati, which some of which I presume were enslaved, the uh, sort of counter tenor singers. I'm actually, I don't know about that. That's a little yeah. bit later than my time. So I, I mean, I know they, they exist, but I haven't looked into earlier. it. They were, they were castrati in the Middle Ages, weren't they? I'm not okay. sure. Maybe they weren't. I don't know about that one. Yeah. Um, but they're... They play a particular role in court. They you don't find them in ordinary people's households. You only find eunuchs in the most elite households. Um, and their their job because they're they're a third gender, right? They're not male. They're not female. They're eunuchs. So their role tends to be as as a go between. And there's a really great book about this, about the Mamluk case in particular by Sean Marmon, who talks about how they, they don't just go between the male and the female side of the household, although they do that, right? There's, there's a eunuch head for the male side of the sultan's household, and there's a eunuch head for the female side of the sultan's household. 
but they also go between the public and the private. They, they tend to be the doorkeepers, right? If you want to have an audience with the sultan, the person who controls who gets to enter the sultan's space, who gets to have an audience and when, those are eunuchs. They also control access to the royal tombs. So if you want to go pray at the tomb of someone, a man or a woman who is from the ruling family, there will be a eunuch who is supervising the tomb and supervising access to the tomb. And during this period, um, the, the important shrines in Mecca and Medina were controlled by the Mamluks. This was part of their leaders' role of the Islamic world, right? That they're the patrons of the two shrines. Those, access to those shrines is also controlled by eunuchs um, because they, they have this role of being able to go between the sacred and, and the secular as well. Um, this, this book by Sean Marmon gets into the why, the reasons why they take on this role. Um, so there are not very many eunuchs, but the role that they play is extremely important. Um, the, the sort of ideology behind it in Byzantine society is a little bit different, but again, you have eunuchs who are playing th this role of sort of the doorkeeper, the person who has access to different parts of the imperial household and the relationship between the divine, the divine emperor and then the ordinary people, the, the eunuchs are also kind of mediating that as well. Um, and I would presume that eunuchs are not necessarily sold. Actually, that's not true. I mean, I, mean, I, I know no, they, are. they are. They, they are. Because I remember there's a, from even an early medieval, um, in early medieval sources, uh, Saxons at Charlemagne would capture, were castrated in Verdun and then marched overland to, um, the slave markets in uh, Spain, in Islamic yeah. Spain. So yeah. they are sold, and they're, they're very valuable. Yeah. In fact, I used to know their value. Very that. valuable. Yeah, very valuable. I mean, that's are, the other thing. Are they the, sold within the Mameluk uh, period? Are they sold from household to household? Yes, they can be sold. Again, they can be given as gifts. They are shadow. They can be moved yeah. around. Um, they. The question about where they come from and who castrates them is difficult to find address in the written sources because everyone wants to blame someone else, uh -huh. right? Yeah, right? Yeah, I noticed, um, that. I noticed that long ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, what part did, uh, well, we, we didn't talk about financial instruments yet. I mean, how, how, does, mm, how yeah. can, you, um, can you mortgage a slave? Yes, you can use a slave for all kinds of financial purposes. So okay. you can... Give a slave to your daughter as a dowry. Mm -hmm. You can invest a slave in a business partnership. So you can you can give your slave to your business partner and they go someplace else and sell them and then take the money and reinvest it in something else and bring it back. Like this is a fairly typical kind of a, a contract. Um, you can own a slave in shares. Uh, there's a there's a document I like to use um, when I'm teaching about this where there's a slave who's owned by 21 people. Good and this document is consolidating ownership. Basically, one person is buying out the, all the other shares, right? <laughs> so how on earth did that happen? This is either a ship's crew that has captured someone and they all have sort of collective ownership, uh -huh. 
or this is a case where there were 24 or 21, I'm sorry, investors in a partnership. And so they each own a 21st share. And now that their, their partnership is concluding, they need to distribute the assets, right? And the slave is one of the assets. Um, you can pledge a slave against a loan. You can insure a slave. Um, you can, I mean, some of these things are more common than others. Right. But if you look hard enough, you can find slaves appearing in the context of all kinds of financial financial instruments. The tricky thing about slaves is unlike a lot of the other kinds of goods you would use cloth or jewels or houses or whatever um, for these kinds of purposes, slaves can die. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit more risky to use a slave, for example, as collateral against a loan as opposed to a vineyard which will not suddenly cease to exist. On the other hand, um, the, the cloth or the gems don't actually do labor. So that's an advantage. Exactly. Um, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And also yeah. they don't breed. People try to get jewels right. to breed, but they won't. And, uh, you know, but slaves well, do. Well, the children of slaves are sometimes seen as financial assets and sometimes not. Sometimes, especially if the fathers are, are free, uh, yeah. um, especially if the father is the slave's owner, sometimes they're adopted into the family. Uh -huh. So there's this sort of convenient ambiguity. It's convenient for the slaveholder, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where the children of slaves might be your heirs, especially if you don't have any heirs. This is an easy, you don't have any heirs through a legitimate marriage, right? Mm -hmm. This is a way to get some. Um, but on the other hand, you also have the right to sell them because their mother was a slave. Whoa. Yes, that, that causes all kinds of interesting situations, as you can imagine. I can imagine. Um, that'd be a great miniseries. Uh, <laughs> yes. Pretty uh, depressing, yeah. but it's, uh, it's historically person. fascinating. But it's, yeah. yeah. Um, so this gets a... I, been thinking about this a lot lately in relation to the United States. So uh, there's been a lot mm -hmm. of literature in the, um, the history of capitalism about the important mm -hmm. and really interesting and hopefully ultimately productive, uh, eventually will be productive arguments about the, uh, the importance of slavery in American economic development. Um, mm -hmm. I know this, you're probably early in thinking about this. There's probably a lot more to be thought about this, but despite general only being 2% uh, enslaved or mm -hmm. in Venice. Uh, what's the importance of slavery in Mediterranean economic development? Um, I was thinking, um, you know, for some of those grain ships that have about, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 people chained to their deck, um, that might be like a sort of a, a, a hedge against uh, arriving in Venice or Genoa and finding the prices collapsed uh, or something right. like that. Um, uh, it, how else do the, how else do these uh, do slaves work in right. making the Mediterranean such an economically prosperous place? I mean, Venice and Genoa. I mean, it can't. They are so much more valuable than England at the time. If we were thinking about them in terms right. of the GDP terms, um, and they're so right. much smaller. Right. Does slavery help that? I mean, slavery is definitely part of this broader diversification of business, right? So, I mean, yes, people, people like medieval merchants like this, this mixed cargo shipping way of dealing in slaves because you're not investing too much in one particular commodity. 
or in one particular ship. You would also, as a merchant, spread your goods across many ships. So if one of them sank, you wouldn't lose everything. Um, when you get to the, the 14th century and insurance starts to develop, um, slaves become insured like other kinds of cargo are insured quite early. So it's not that there's something exceptional about slaves, but they're a piece in this bigger picture of economic development. Um, let's uh, move back to the um, sort of the introduction now that we're mm-hmm. nearing the end of the, of the uh, conversation. Um, you discussed two narratives that have obscured the importance of medieval slavery, um, which is kind of odd mm-hmm. because if you read any sources connected to the medieval Mediterranean, you realize the ubiquity of slaves. They're always right. there. Um, right. But nevertheless, they've been obscured. Um, how? How and why? Right. So there's there's two big picture narratives that have made it harder for people to see this. Um, one is sort of the the model of economic development and modes of production that has its roots in Karl Marx's work, right? And, you know, Marxist historians have taken this in in one direction, but economic historians who are not necessarily Marxist, but they're trying to think about how societies develop, um, have sort of developed this in, in a different direction. What Marx talked about, though, was a, a series of of phases of ways that societies produce. Um, He talks about uh, a slave mode of production, and he thinks that this is characteristic of the Greek and Roman period. He talks about a feudal mode of production where you have serfs and you have lords, and this is characteristic of the Middle Ages. Then you have a capitalist mode of production, and then perhaps you have a communist mode of production, right? So setting aside the communist one, we're going to Focus on the medieval part, because this this is the issue for medieval historians, right? If slavery is characteristic of the ancient period, and feudalism is supposed to be characteristic of the medieval period, and when we're talking about the 14th and 15th centuries, we're talking, as we've already talked um, in this conversation, about this transition from maybe a feudal economy into a capitalist economy, what do we do with the presence of slaves? Because they, they're not supposed to fit, hmm. Right. Um, so that's that's one issue within um, the the historic uh, economic historian studies on this is trying to figure out how slaves would fit into a grand narrative, um, especially because they're not serfs and we we expect to find serfs. Then there's a narrative which really comes out of the abolitionist movement, which is, I call it the narrative of Christian amelioration, right? That as Christianity spreads, the idea that slavery is not an appropriate way to treat people spreads with it. And so gradually over the course of time, Christianity causes slavery to disappear until this terrible thing, the transatlantic slave trade, happened, and this is what the abolitionists are trying to halt, and they're successful, thankfully, right? Mm -hmm. So for that project, for the project of halting the transatlantic slave trade and then, in the end, abolishing slavery, this idea that Christianity is, is fundamentally opposed to slavery was very successful. But historically... Again, if you're a medieval historian and you want to sort of pick this apart a little bit, 
So when exactly did Christianity get rid of slavery, right? How exactly did that happen? And when you go back and start looking, and here you are, 14th and 15th century, this is before the big, horrible transatlantic slave trade interrupts the progress of Christianity, but there are still slaves, right? And not only are there still slaves in societies that have been Christian for over a thousand years at this point, they're being held by religious institutions. So there's a problem with that narrative as well. Um, the idea that religion somehow inherently drives out slavery. And then you, you, you point out there's a very interesting, also an Islamic amelioration narrative as well. Yeah. I thought about it, I guess I first realized that in probably the autobiography of Malcolm X. Which, right. That's like the last chapter in a, in a, in a way. Right. So this is, this is a very interesting point of tension, and there's, there's a great book about this by Eve Trout Powell, who looks at the case of, of Egypt particularly. Um, but there's also work on, on the abolition of slavery in the Ottoman context. Um, so once abolitionists have succeeded in abolishing the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in you know, England and America and places like that, they now want to encourage the abolition of slavery in other parts of the world, which is good. But it gets tied up with um, tensions around colonialism, right? About other people coming in and telling you how to behave. Mm -hmm. And in the Islamic world, when we're talking about the Ottoman context, as in the Mamluk context, there are a lot of elite slaves, right? People who are in positions of power. Um, By the time you get to the 19th century, it's less likely to be people who were enslaved themselves as children and then perhaps later manumitted. But there are a lot of people whose mothers were slaves. And they really resent the comparison between Ottoman elite court slavery and American plantation slavery. So that's not to say that the Ottoman elite court form of slavery was okay, right? But when British abolitionists show up and say, slavery is evil, get rid of your slave concubines, the the first response tends to be like, well, what what are you doing in your colony, right? So there, there's a there's a tension that grows there, um, and the reaction to that tension within the Islamic world. So there's there's this first sort of defensive reaction about um, slavery means something a little bit different, especially for elites in the Islamic world. The reaction to that is, well, look, if Christians can go back to the Bible and make the argument that the Bible is against slavery. Muslims can go back to the Quran and make the argument that that the Quran is against slavery, and you can certainly do that. So that's a lot of um, anti-slavery proponents in the Islamic world now are making Quranic anti-slavery arguments. Um, I think this runs ultimately into the same problem as the Christian amelioration theory, right? It's great for activism. It's great for getting people motivated to get rid of slavery. And I think that's a good thing, right? That's not something that <laughs> I want to let's, undermine. Let's emphasize that. that we, yes. We're in favor right? of that. As people, we're in favor of it. As, As historians, people, there is a problem. There's a problem with the way we read our medieval sources. And yep. so what what I want what I would like to come out of this and what I try to argue in the book is not not that um, using religious arguments against slavery is a bad idea. I think it's it's very effective. But that we need to not assume that people in the past had the same moral assumptions that we make today. Yeah. 
And I think that's really important, actually. I think that's, that's one of the few pieces of the story that's actually something we can celebrate, right? We've achieved a new and different moral consensus than what existed in the 15th century, and that's great. Yeah. But we need, as historians, to be able to separate those things. Although it then makes me um, immediately go to where I often, when, when I introduce, uh, when I'm introducing Ira Berlin to an American survey class in the past, mm-hmm. I immediately ask the question, huh, isn't it an interesting question about is why we don't have slavery? Because mm-hmm. what is clear from your book, or what's clear, the more primary sources I read about American slavery, right up until the very moment of its ending, Mm-hmm. is how ubiquitous slavery has been as a human institution yeah. and how extraordinarily yeah. adaptable it's been. And so yeah. more and more, the pressing question that come that I, I kind of find myself musing over again and again is, how the hell did we ever get rid of it? Now, arguably, we haven't. There's plenty right. of forms of slavery right now, uh, including debt peonage in various places around the world. Um, mm-hmm. But it is rather amazing to me that in such a very short time, um, the Europe and the Americas turned against it, and then other p- parts of the world turned against it. And re- in relatively short order, considering its longevity and ubiquity, um, right? Uh, what I, I was thinking of that when we, we uh, when I the, because I was one of the questions I did wanted to finish up with you is is what are the benefits and the pitfalls of thinking about slavery comparatively, um, right? Uh, we were talking again beforehand about some of the work that Sharon Murphy is, is doing, who's been on the podcast before, um, which is very much like the work that you're doing now on the financial benefits of slavery, mm-hmm. the way the financial instruments involved, that, the way slaves are financial instruments. Um, and that's a very helpful comparative uh, way of thinking. Um, right. But of course, there are some pitfalls as well. Sure. Yeah. I think to, to what you were just saying about, about the way things have changed, I think... Um, so first of all, there's there's a great book by Chris Brown called Moral Capital that talks about you know what was special about that abolitionist moment that made it so successful, which I found really helpful since that's a period I don't we'll, look at for myself. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, um, but there's there's also there there's a book that came out more recently by Joseph Miller um, trying to theorize slavery more broadly, and one of the things he talks about is slaving as a strategy, right? Nobody just take slaves for the sake of taking slaves. Everybody takes slaves for a reason. So there is still labor exploitation in the world today in in many different forms. Um, There's still things that I think would fit the definition of slavery, but are no longer legal. So how much do we care about slavery as a legal status versus slavery as a set of of practices, Mm -hmm. right? Um, so the, the strategy of exploiting other people's bodies and exploiting other people's labor definitely still exists. It's and, just not slavery. Yeah. It's yeah. not legal slavery at well, this point. We, 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 so I want to be careful with the definitions because yeah. Um, yeah. the uh, slavery is that interpersonal tyranny. Um, it's clear in some of these well, people. It, some, of these yeah. people, some of these people that you were describing had awesome lives up right yes. up, right until the moment they didn't and it was all an arbitrary right. it was it was from their perspective as a normal person's perspective it was an arbitrary person it was an arbitrary decision on the on the part of those who uh owned them um so that right the slave, well, the slave relationship is always a tyrannical relationship 
Sometimes so juries are uh, benevolent, and sometimes they aren't. But they mm -hmm. can go in it; they can switch in an instant. And that's sort of a, there's that, there's a definition of slavery um, from a sociologist, Orlando Patterson, that I find very helpful. Yeah, and it, it's a three part definition. And yep. interestingly, it has nothing to do with labor. Yep. Um, yeah, I, slavery, I like that definition very much. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a good one. Um, slavery involves violence or the threat of violence. Yep. It involves natal alienation. So this is disconnection from your family, your kin group, your culture, yeah. your, your past, right? Every, everything that's associated with the circumstances of your birth, your origin, is cut off. And um, dishonor. And that, again, it can take different forms in different societies, depending on how, you know, honorableness and respectability and and all these associated kind of concepts are, are defined. But the idea that, that slaves are less than, they're dishonorable people, they don't have the privileges of, you know, ordinary members of society, whatever that might mean. Yeah, I'm just rereading um, slave, uh, Patterson's Slavery and Social Death. Yes. And, yeah. So uh, that's that's sort of a good place to start to think about, you know, what and is what is and isn't slavery and how can you have other kinds of exploitation and coercion that are are bad. Um, they're undesirable, not something you would want to happen to you, but are not necessarily slavery. They're yeah. they're bad in a different way. Yeah. Um what are some of the you, you discuss um one of the things that uh, anyone's familiar from teaching undergraduates, uh, people want to say, hey, so which slavery is better and which slavery is worse? And that's that's one of the pitfalls that people always get into when they are talking about slavery. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's helpful. I mean, so you asked no, about comparative slavery. I think the, the value of studying slavery in comparison is it causes, at least for me, it causes me to ask questions that I wouldn't otherwise ask. Yeah. Um, the pitfall is that you get too much caught up in the comparison and not enough in really understanding slavery within a specific context. And as a historian, I think specificity of context is really important. Right. So um, there are things, for example, like finding these guides to slave buying in the Mamluk context. It had never occurred to me to, to think that there should be guides to slave buying. But all of a sudden, once I found some, why don't the Italians have them, right? So it, it, having that comparative perspective can cause you to ask questions or to, or to see the absence of things or to see what's peculiar about a specific society that if you only study that society, you would take it for granted. But when you compare it with lots of other societies, it's like, no, wait, actually, that's an unusual practice and it needs, needs explaining, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, I think comparative study can, can help you place specific examples in a bigger picture, but you don't want to lose track of the fact that every example is distinct. Yeah, so comparison. I think the comparison can, at its best, lead us deeper into context. Sorry? Comparison at its best can lead us deeper into context. Yes, exactly. Um, I think trying to compare which slavery is better or worse in, in a certain way is kind of missing the specificity, right? There's yep. lots of ways to be miserable. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't necessarily want to say that one of them is better or worse than the other one, because it also, I mean, in a sense, that also takes away the individually, individuality of the slaves, right? Yep. Different individuals experience different kinds of oppression differently. Mm -hmm. um, so I think 
rather than trying to say better or worse, it's it's more helpful to talk about what's common among different forms of slavery, what's distinctive to a particular kind of slavery in a particular context. And that gives you more insight into what people are experiencing and, and what's sort of distinctive about that experience. Well, finally, um, if anyone studies the notes of this book, uh, they'll realize mm-hmm. it, it took you a long time to put together. Yes. Um, so how long? And um, I'm presuming uh, from your uh, polite demurral at the beginning to, re- to, to the refusal to discuss Jewish views that you don't have Hebrew, um, no. but you have... Well, like everything else in the Mediterranean, I mean, it would seem you've got Arabic, uh, Italian, Latin, Greek. Um, no, no, no Greek, no unfortunately. Greek? Okay, but uh, how did you how how did you keep all this stuff straight? Is what a lot of people are going to be wondering if they if they think about it. I mean, there's how do you keep your notes? How do you how do you do this? Oh, I'm sorry, my computer made a noise here. Um, so for keeping the notes straight, I have software, which is terribly helpful. Um, I have a database, which I use to keep track of all the records. And then I have Zotero, which I use to keep track of all the references and notes. It's, it's great. I, I, I love really, it. I really, I wish Zotero would like advertise with us because I, I talk about it so much. And then say, so, yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. Uh, what do you use as a um, database and how, how, do you, how do you do that? So I have my data. Uh, sorry, my database software is called FileMaker Pro, oh, and so you can create your own database. You can make your own fields. You can decide, you know, is this going to be a checkbox or are you going to fill out information? Um, but that makes it very easy to sort of search and sort and organize things. Um, I think sort of the, the bigger question. I actually got into this um, when I first started grad school, which is, what, 11 years ago? Gosh, a long time. Um, Go on. (laughs) But I, yeah, it's sort of frighteningly long. Um, But I was interested when I entered graduate school. I I knew I was interested in trade. I knew I was interested in intercultural connections. I knew I was interested in travel. I was interested in the Mediterranean. My background already. I had been interested in Christian Muslim interactions. Um, So I knew going in, I wanted to do something with merchants, um, something with the Mediterranean. I had already learned Latin and I was going to learn Arabic in grad school. I had already decided that. And my first semester there, my advisor was co-teaching a class with an American historian about slavery and captivity. So I thought, this is my advisor. I better take it. Um, And I wrote a paper about slavery in the Black Sea because I was searching for something where there would be both Christian and Muslim merchants. And it had to have something to do with captivity. So this is what I ended up with. Wow. Um, And it was a terrible. That is is so wonderful. That was your first paper? (laughs) It was my first paper and it was horrible. (laughs) I did a really bad job. Um, But in the context of doing a really bad job, I realized that there was more work to be done than could ever be done in a semester. And specifically, I realized that the people studying Italian slavery and the people studying Mamluk slavery weren't talking to each other. These were two completely different historiographies Hmm. um, because they were working with sources in completely different languages. Hmm. So that... Partly my sort of dissatisfaction with this paper and wanting to do a better job kind of drove me to continue working on it. But also I thought, well, here's 
an opening, which I hadn't expected to stumble across. But since I did, why not? You know, this is a place where having Latin and Arabic would probably enable me to say something that people haven't said before. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I felt like there was a lot of potential. Um, and that, that definitely turned out to be the case. So I, I really lucked into this topic. You know, there were a, a series of circumstances that sort of drew me into this. And then once I really got into it, I realized there's all these, you know, interesting economic and religious and social and political implications to this that I can just keep going with it. Well, my guest today has been Hannah Barker. She is author of That Most Precious Merchandise, The Mediterranean Trade in Black Sea Slaves, 1260-1500, available from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Hannah, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.